You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. We're in the middle of a series called Sinners and Saints in which we are walking through uh, the book of Romans uh, at sort of a snail's pace. Um, <laughs> and today's, today's sermon is entitled The Imputed Righteousness of Christ. It follows really the two weeks in which we discussed both the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man. And so what Paul is going to do is further explain really the statement that he's been building up to all the way from verse uh, or from chapter 1 verse 17 in which he says that the gospel the gospel message is the righteousness of Christ revealed from faith and for faith and so today we're going to look at that idea of the gospel being the righteousness of God revealed the from faith for faith portion will really be explained in chapters 4 and five, and so uh, that's where we are parking today. Um, everything, like I said, from chapter one up until now, has really been one giant cohesive message that Paul is trying to get us to, and this is really the the conclusion of that of that truth. And so, in chapter one, verses eighteen through thirty-two, what happened? God told us that His wrath is revealed against unrighteousness, right? And so he goes through that whole list, that laundry list of things that you and I tend to look at as maybe, uh, as maybe ultimate. And yet the underneath portion of that, what is below that, the chief sort of unrighteousness that God is, is revealing his wrath against is this idea that there is a God and that we have failed to acknowledge him as such, right? And then in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, it tells us that God is righteous and upright in judging men by their works. So he says, this is, this is sort of the truth of who all of us are, and God is right, God is just to, to judge that, to say that that is wrong, to be the one who defines what truth is and, and what truth isn't, what is good and what is not good, because he has created all things. And then Chapter 2, verses 12 through 29 tell us that all are condemned, whether having the written law revealed or whether they're operating underneath the law of their hearts. So he's talking to these two disparate groups of people, and he's saying whether you claim the law or whether you claim ignorance, you are still judged, you are still underneath the righteous judgment of God. And then in chapters 3, 1 through 8, it's a treatise on God's righteousness that tells us in spite of our unfaithfulness, that God will remain faithful. He'll remain faithful to a promise that he's made to his people, which if you've been here, you know that God has promised both to judge and condemn sin, and he's also promised to provide salvation. So he's going to accomplish those two things. And and the question really becomes, we are helpless and hopeless in that equation. So how is he going to do that? What is it that Jesus has actually accomplished on our behalf? And then chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, is the clearest indictment of our sin. The clearest indictment. It says there is none righteous, not even one, that we don't even have the capability within us to seek God in the right way. And then we arrive... um, at really probably what is the crux, the fulcrum of the Christian faith, the thing that everything hinges upon in this portion of text. And so Paul is going to explain to us how Jesus fulfills the promise of God to both judge and condemn sin and to provide a means, a way to be saved, a way to be made right with him, to be found righteous 
before him. And so, uh, like we always do, we're just going to break this down kind of verse by verse. We're going to take uh, verses 21, uh, really through 23 here, but it says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And so here's the thing. I want to camp on this idea just for one second. The meat uh, of what we have to do is, is a little bit later, but this is important. As humans, we tend to gravitate towards, towards the poles. Do you, you understand what I mean by that? Like, so if there's two sides of an argument, that we, we tend to gravitate towards the extreme of, of either side of that argument. Like there's not really room for a middle ground. There's not a lot of people that ride the fence very well. And so we see a tremendous sort of oscillation between uh, the two ends or the two poles of, of any given idea or argument all throughout our history and as history moves, moves forward. So whether that's left or right, whether that's humanism or, or uh, religion or faith or science or all of those things, you kind of see a gradual sort of back and forth. We go, we go too far this way and we go, oh yeah, that wasn't good. That was really bad. So we're going to start moving back this way. And then we get over here and recognize that that's not good either. And so we start making our way back. And so the, the sort of the, <laughs> the trajectory of history or the rhythm of history plays itself out in that way. And the, the same thing is true of the church and the history of the church, especially with this idea of law and gospel, right? So um, there's, there's some of us who like to move towards that idea of law because it's tangible. It's like, I can quantify that. I can put, I, I can understand that. Like that tells me what to do, how to live. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna live in light of that. And it's about the law. It's about following the law. It's about doing what the law requires. And then there's people that end up way over here, and they say, no, it's not about the law. It's absolutely not about that at all. In fact, it's all about grace, so much so that my works don't even matter. It doesn't matter. And that's where you arrive at the question that Paul asked last week, which was, okay, so if, if by my unrighteousness God's righteousness is revealed, why not sin more? Paul's going to talk about that in chapter 6. But what we have to understand here is Paul is so good at illustrating for us really what the, what the truth is, that although the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the righteousness of God is manifest apart from the law, but the law and the prophets don't just go out the window. This is why the Old Testament is so entirely relevant, so incredibly deep, so devastatingly true, because all of it points to a points us to or bears witness to the revelation of the righteousness of God in Christ. And so that's why we say every week when you come here at, at Sojourn, we're all about Jesus. And to that end, we go to the scriptures, not just the New Testament, but the entire thing, because all of it is about the business of revealing who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. And Paul's going to expound on this later on, but I want us to recognize the worth, the value, the necessity of the law, that although it condemns us, that although it makes us aware of sin, it serves that purpose. That just because we live under grace, just because God has established a new covenant in the blood of Christ, that its value is no, is no less, it is, it, it is still useful in that sense. And so he says this, Although, it's, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And so here's the thing. 
The righteousness of God is ultimately revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Simply, this means that in what Jesus has done, God fulfills his promises to judge and condemn sin and to provide salvation for his people. And we lay hold of this salvation by faith. And that's, that's tricky, and we could talk, we could do a whole sermon on that. And here's the thing, we will. It'll be next week. Um, because because it talks all about that in chapters 4 and chapter 5. So just hold on to that. But we lay hold of this salvation by faith. And here's where we're going to spend the sort of the meat of our, of our time today. And we're going to use some very technical, very theological language this morning. Um, if you know me, you know that I tend not to do this. Um, because I think that everything should sort of be brought on a, on, a, on a common level where we can all engage with really deep truth um, but in, in an intelligible way, right? Like, so I don't want to just speak a foreign language to you. But for believers and for unbelievers alike, these terms speak to us clearly of the richness and the depth of what Jesus has accomplished. And so I, I will explain them as, as best as I can. So let's just do this real quick. As, we, as we've seen through chapters 1 all the way through chapter 3, and really the broader theme of Romans is this, is this idea of justification, how are we justified in the sight of a holy God if we are completely and utterly sinful? That's essentially what Paul is writing to, to answer that question, whether it's for the Gentile that understands that he is cut off from the promise, that he is not included in sort of this lineage that is denoted by, uh, by bloodline and by circumcision, or whether it's the Jew who says it's by virtue of holding this law, it's by simply having been revealed the goodness and graciousness of God in the law, that, that, that I'm justified. And Paul is combating both of those things. He's saying, no, there's, there's a new way, there, there's a, a different way in which we are justified before a holy God. And he says this in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so here's the thing. When we talk about justification, um, there's really sort of a, a, a two-part exchange that happens when we talk about this idea of being justified, being justified before God. In justification, God makes a, a legal declaration over us. And so it's not what Jesus has done. When we talk about what it is that Jesus has done, it's not simply that he has pronounced a pardon over us, right? So it's not just, okay, you're forgiven, and that's it. But that in justification, there's actually a, a legal dec declaration, like a standing before God that is given to us. It is an act whereby God declares us, in fact, to be just. Not just as a trite way of saying it, not just as a, oh, yeah, sure, but that God legally is saying, you are just in my sight. And there's two things that make that happen. And he says this in verse 25. Or we'll just take verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And so most of us have probably read that particular verse and said, okay, I have no idea what that P word means. Um, and so we're just going to talk about propitiation for a second. 
um, as, as one part of the transaction that happens uh, when we are justified, right? Because that's what it says. It says that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the whole, that's the end of the thesis for the whole first three chapters of Romans. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And then it says there is one way to be justified, and that's through Christ Jesus, who was put forward, through who his blood was put forward as a propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation um, in just the common language, like linguistic sense, just means to satisfy the demands of justice. Now, in biblical terms, it means to satisfy the demands of God's wrath. So when we go back to chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and we see that God actually has wrath in him stored up against evil, against unrighteousness, that, that he's not just apathetic, he's not just saying, oh, that's not a big deal, don't worry about that. It's okay. No, that, he's, that he has wrath towards sin. That that wrath has to be satisfied in some way, shape, or form. And so God places sin, he places evil under his judgment, and he promises to pour out his wrath upon it. So here's the marvel of what this word means in this context. That Jesus Christ and his blood is the propitiation for our sins. Essentially, by the blood of God, we are saved from God. Do you get that? Like, so it's, it's God's righteousness uh, that, that held us in contempt, right? It's what accuses us, is that we are wholly unrighteous, that we can't live up to his standard, that we are sinful, that there's nothing that we can do or be that will generate for us a positive response in the eyes of God, right? That's... That's, if you've been here, you should know that by now. Um, and yet, God does what? He takes upon himself the form of a man. He was made into human form. And he takes upon himself the penalty that was due us. So Christ, as our substitute, takes upon himself the wrath that we deserve to pay the penalty that was due for our guilt. This satisfies the demands of God's justice. So here's the thing. When we talk about God being righteous, it simply means that in everything God does, he is morally upright. That, that he can't be accused for that. So, so when we question him, whether you're a believer or not a believer, and you question him, you say, well... How is God fair, or how is God righteous, or how is he just? How could he do this? How could he do that? That, that all of that, um, all of those answers to all of those questions uh, end in the favor of God, in God being right. That God, in his righteousness, had to satisfy his, his justice. Right? So he can't just say, hey, sin is a really bad thing, and you are plagued with it but I'm just going to overlook it. Because then he, he wouldn't be just. There would be a wrong for which there was nothing made right. Right? And I think, I mean, all of us agree, I think to some extent, maybe not for ourselves, but, but definitely for other people, when we see something that has gone wrong, uh, whether it's someone has stolen something, someone has slandered someone, someone has maybe killed someone, whatever it might be, we, we cry out for justice, Right? And we say, like, hey, we want this person to receive what is due them for their action. We don't, we don't want judges to just sit up there and be like, yeah, you know, you did that, but it's not that big of a deal. So let's just let this one slide, and we'll, and we'll catch you next year kind of thing. Or don't come back. Try not to. 
And so neither can God do that, right? Like if God says that there's, that there's sort of a, a moral standard, a universal moral truth that you and I are required to hold to in order to live up to, to his righteousness and we fall short of that, God has to judge it. Otherwise, he is unjust. But here's the thing. The righteousness of God, the moral uprightness of God is revealed in the fact that he does judge that he does condemn sin. The beauty of this for the believer is that that judgment, that condemnation was placed on Christ in your stead. He is the propitiation for our sin. In what Jesus did by living the perfect life and then dying in our place, he satisfied God's justice. The need for God to be a just God was satisfied. Do you get that? It was satisfied on your behalf. So here's the thing, though. Like I said, justification, this idea of us being justified before God, being able to walk before a holy God and him say, yes, you are welcome, you are accepted, you are justly in my presence, is a a two-part transaction. So God is not only the, the propitiation for our sin, he doesn't just make the payment and then leave, but he also provides for us expiation. Expiation simply means this. It just means that our sin is removed from us. And so you can think of it like this. He not only removes the penalty, but he removes the presence of sin in the life of the believer. And the best example for this is really in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And this is another reason that I want us to understand sort of the the implications or the great truth that is found in the Old Testament for us today that points to so clearly to the person and work of Jesus. See, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, this is essentially what would happen on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, if you're Jewish or if you're familiar with that. Um... Essentially, here's what would happen. Two healthy goats without blemish, right? So two, like, not just like, oh, here, let's take the sick one and we'll throw him up there. But like, <laughs> they're, like they're like, let's take the best one, the perfect one, the one without spot, the, one without, the ones without blemish would be chosen um, for this ritual, for this sacrifice. And, and here's what would happen, and here's why there were two. The first goat would be slaughtered to represent what? To represent propitiation in which the wrath of God was, was dealt upon symbolically on this goat. But here's what's crazy, and here's what would happen with the second one. Then the high priest, acting as the mediator between a sinful people and a holy God, would take the second goat, and he would lay his hands upon it while confessing the sins of the people. And this goat, called the scapegoat, would then be sent away to run free, symbolically taking their sins with it. So here's what's crazy. Jesus imputes his righteousness to us in the place of our sin. Our righteousness is an alien righteousness that God, through Jesus, both propitiates our sin and then Jesus expiates. He takes our sin away. And so we're, it's, not, it's not just a, oh, you're forgiven, but I still see that, or I, whatever that might, however you might 
picture that in your brain. But that the penalty and the presence have been removed from us in such a way that God actually looks upon us as sons and daughters, as co-heirs with Christ, and that we share in the inheritance that He has secured through that work. That is the fullness of the meaning of this idea of justification. So when we read here in Romans, and it says that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace, that's what's happened. That's the transaction that has taken place. The wrath of God satisfied on the cross because of what Jesus did. And then the removal, like the remove, the cleansing of our sins from us as believers. And this is why the church actually living like the church, actually seeing the implications of this truth come to be in our lives is so important. Because you cannot hold to this truth. You cannot read this and live a life unchanged. You just... You just can't. When you recognize that the wrath of God towards you was satisfied, when you recognize that everything in you that was blameful and shameful has now been replaced with what is spotless and shameless, it changes everything. This is the crux of what we believe. And we see this echoed really in another verse that we read earlier today from 1 John Chapter 1, verse 9, when it says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us of our sins, but it doesn't stop there, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so in that, we see again that He not only forgives the sin, but that He removes that from us, that that thing that defined us, being, being derived from or descendants of Adam, We were defined by sin to such a degree, stained to such a degree that the Bible tells us that we were actually dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ. He forgives, he pays that penalty, but he also cleanses, he removes the presence. And then it says this, In verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's the thing. There's no such thing as as cheap grace. The gospel is not simply an announcement of pardon in justification. God does not merely decide unilaterally to forgive our sins. See, that's, that's kind of the prevailing idea in, in Christianity, I would say, today, or the, the cultural Christianity that you and I experience here in the South, is that what happens in the gospel is that God just freely forgives us of sin because he is a loving, dear, and wonderful God, and it does not disturb him that we violate everything that is holy. But here's the thing, God never negotiates his righteousness. God never lays aside his holiness to save us. God demands and requires that sin be punished. And the beauty of the gospel is that in spite of our incredible offense, God remains true to that and he does punish our sin by exercising justice and wrath on somebody else. 
in this, God remains just in that the punishment for sin is paid. And he is the justifier in the sense that it's through Jesus, the Son of God, that 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 happens. He satisfies his promise. Do you see this? What's God promised to do? I mean, you pick any given psalm, any day of the week. It's going to say what he, that he despises the wicked, that he's, that he's going to crush them. And, and that the righteous he will bring into his fold. Any given part of the Old Testament, pretty much, if you just randomly turn to a page, you would see something along those lines. That God will punish the wicked and that he will uplift the righteous. And in Jesus, in the person and work of Jesus, he does both of those things. He condemns sin. He condemns our wickedness by placing the wrath that he had stored up towards that onto his own son, the perfect sacrifice. And then he uplifts the righteous by transferring his own righteousness to us. And so here's the thing. There's really only, um, there's only one response to this if you really believe this to be true. And verse 27 28, share what that is. It says this, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so here's the thing. If you're, if you're a believer in the room, um, you've been coming around sojourn, you've probably heard this at some point, but if, if you haven't been, this will be good for you. We cannot boast in anything because everything has been given to us. This idea of a proud Christian is really paradoxical, like it's inconsistent with the gospel. It's antithetical to the gospel that says that we have nothing to boast in, in and of ourselves but that we boast in Jesus because it's in Jesus that our justification, that our righteousness is secured before God. And so we brag about Him. We tell of His glory, His righteousness, His love, His kindness, His mercy, understanding that everything is by Him and through Him and for Him. This is why we exist. If you want to know why Sojourn gathers on a Sunday morning, if you want to know why we have neighborhood parishes, if you want to know why we feel like the church is a community of people that have been drawn together, it's because we live in light of this identity. We are a a bought people. We belong to God and to one another. He has secured that for himself with great cost. And so this idea of there being a a casual Christianity of of sort of a, you know, I do that when I feel like it, is completely and entirely foreign to the truth of the word. We have one hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. You go, I'm just railing off scriptures at this point, sorry. (laughs) It's just that good. Um, but so here's the thing, if, if, if I were to make sort of the uh, one appeal to you as a believer, um, 
Number one, if, if you're not involved in a community of faith, you need to be. That's your new identity. That's what you've been purchased into. That's, what, that's actually what Christ died for. You know, we like to think in a very individualistic sense. And, and Christ's death does have individual implications for us in that when we respond, he does something in us. And yet there are vast, innumerable communal implications in that as well. That, that Jesus died to purchase for himself a people a people both to whom he would reveal himself and through whom he will reveal himself. And that people is the church. So if you're a Christian in the room, or maybe you've just kind of been raised in cultural Christianity and you need to kind of reinvestigate where you're at, do that in community. Do that among a body of believers for whom this is truth. If you're, if you're not a believer... Um, I'll just tell you this, true Christians boast in Christ, not themselves. And so if you've had maybe some unpleasant encounters with, with someone who would, you would maybe consider prideful, one, I would, I would probably just admit to you that we're still sinful, and we still struggle, and yet our hope is not, is not in anything that we have or own or can be or can acquire, but that it's in Jesus. And in terms of justification, believer, the truth for you is that you don't have to justify yourself. And so here's the thing. We, you know, there's a lot of people that tend to look at um, maybe the statutes of Christianity or, the, again, what we said last week. Far too often, we're known more for our morality than for our message, right? In, in cultural Christianity, like that's, that's kind of how it works. We're known for, okay, we're against this. We don't do this. We don't drink. We don't whatever, all that stuff laundry list. And we're not known for this truth that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by faith through Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, and so we, we tend to get characterized as a people who are sort of crushed underneath a weight or a burden to live a certain way. Right? So when, when people who are not believers look at us, they say, That's not, there's no, no freedom in that. That I'm, that I'm captive in that situation. That I'm captive to uh, a line of thinking, a way of, a way of acting. And yet, here, here's the thing. If you're a believer in the room, there is great freedom in this truth. We are simultaneously... Sinner and saint, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that Christ has done. So here's the thing. When we recognize that we don't have to boast in ourselves, that there's nothing that we could accumulate, that we could put forward, that would be good enough, that would be, you know, acceptable in his sight. When, when we recognize that, and then we recognize that even in spite of that, he has counted us as his beloved. Man, that frees us up to be who we are. No shame, no guilt, a sober assessment of ourselves, to be able to look at myself truly and recognize, hey, these, these are areas in which I am still battling sin, and yet God, in Jesus, counts me as righteous. That's justification. 
We can go back to that courtroom that we were in last week. And remember, we were talking about that idea of approaching the, 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 the judgment seat of God, that he is there, he's the judge, and he's looking through the evidence that accuses you. And we talked about how frightening that would be to approach that bench by yourself and just say, I got nothing left. And yet, what this tells us is that we get to approach that bench, we get to approach that with Jesus as our defense attorney, that he gets to go up there and says, I've got this. And here is the evidence. Here is a perfectly lived life. Here is a death that was meted out for the remission of sin. And he is called upon my name in faith. And he stands just in your presence. Guys, that's, that's freedom. No acts, no need, to, no need to put up any kind of front. Because the only person that matters has already seen it all. And in Jesus has counted you as justified, righteous, through faith. If you're not a believer in the room, uh, you could ask yourself this question. Where do you, or I would ask you this question, where do you find justification? How do you atone for the wrong that you've done? I'm not here to tell you what you've done wrong or what things those might be. That doesn't even matter. That's not the point. The point is, I think if we're honest with ourselves, every single person in this room has done something in their life that they can't atone for. You can't make it up. There's no forgiveness to be had. But here's the thing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to justify. He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse of all unrighteousness. The grace of God in Jesus is a free gift taken by faith. That is Romans 3.22 tells us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. If you're not a believer in the room, that's where, you, that's where justification is. That's where you find it. So what I would implore you to do this morning is to consider whether or not this is true of you. I think if you're honest with yourself, it is. That all of us have sinned, that all of us have fallen short. And maybe you've been made painfully, tearfully aware of that. But the beautiful part, we always memorize verse 23, but 24 tells us that you can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That through him and through him alone, you can stand before a holy God, a God whose standards, whose righteousness accuses you and be found righteous in his sight. It is the answer for, for every question, everything in your life that causes you pain or, or discomfort. 
not necessarily in removing it, but in explaining it. And so my prayer, my hope is that you would consider that this morning. And ultimately, that all of us would rejoice together. That as we sing songs in just a moment, that we would recognize the great debt that we are in. And the great debt that has been paid on our behalf. That we would truly worship in this, in this truth that God has justified us in Jesus. That he has both paid the penalty for our sin and that he has removed the presence of it from us. And that one day he will do so finally and fully in the new heaven and the new earth.